This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manese. On today's show, we reflect on some of our favourite stories from 2022, from our obsession with Danish design to studio visits that have stayed with us. All that and more coming up on Monocle on Design. Hello and welcome to the first of our two-part best-of specials reflecting on this year for Monocle on Design. And I'm joined in the studio by Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, and behind the glass, our producer, Maylee Evans, who will chip in as well. But I guess to start, Natalie Theodosi, how are you? I'm good. You rounding out the, rounded out the year nicely? Exactly. I mean, not that you just saw me five minutes before, but we don't, yeah, no, uh, you, we, you didn't don't, don't bother ruin, asking how I am then, but it's good to... Don't ruin the magic of how this works. As far as anyone knows, we've just come and sat in the studio now. Uh, and and that's, let's just pretend that that's exactly what's happened. So uh, we're going to go with our favourite picks from the year. Yes. What, what, have, what have you chosen? So I chose our interview with Kinetro, uh, which happened in Milan when he was uh, showing his, his last ever collection for his family-run business. And I think it was just such a nice moment looking back now. It was a sunny summer day in Milan. Oh. Yeah, especially today, given that we, we're in snowy London. It's it's so nice to look back to, to that day. He was, I remember, wearing all white and he had bare feet. Bold. And yeah, and he just spoke about the values of Etro, which are all about Bohemia and working with family, but also now stepping aside and giving the platform to a younger designer to come in. So great emotional interview that was really nice to look back to. Superb. Let's hear that now. This collection, there's a new sensuality, a new erotism, which is quite unusual from my side. Even the, the music you will hear is by Talking Heads, and the title is Naked. So there's a strong sense of, of nakedness, you know, because I believe, for example, I'm, I'm now I'm barefooted because I think poetry is barefoot. It's the way you can feel, you know, the energy coming from below. And I must tell you, I came in with a pair of shoes, which I don't know where I throw them. And by taking my shoes off, I felt a reconnection because, of course, it's a very special day today. So also very emotional. You will see in the catwalk, there's a lot of the guys barefooted with rings. So I played very much with jewelry for the feet. It's something I really felt for the first time, really stemming and gemming from below it, like flowers. The collection is about flowers and flowering. Etro is pure escapism. Etro is vacation in terms vacant, in terms of void, in terms absence of thoughts. It's what we need in order to refresh. Imagine a better world. We have to leave out all the news we have to leave out because beauty is always around us that's why poetry it was also for me a way to salute with the best that my family with my sister all the people working here and the way we've embraced nature let it flow through poetry since you're closing this chapter what are you hoping for the next chapter for Etro now that yeah, a new journey is about to begin Alora. now we're here to with a lot of experience because it's 40 years working in this field. So giving advice, I mean, there's time for everything and this is time to give good advice. I basically, with my sister and Jacopo, we have the knowledge 
of all the archive, all the story behind it. And there's this young guy, Marco, who I've seen his work six years ago, I met him before, who is really also fond of the history of the company and is going to disrupt it a bit, which I think is what we need and what I really am I'm, uh, eager to see. I want to see a, a change and I want to see him as a leader, one deciding everything from the shops to everything. So this is quite important. So we are there backing him to grow, be strong and, and win the race. Keen atro there. Uh, one of the other things, you know, to mention is just how much uh, we talk about Danish design. We've, we've featured it a lot on the show, particular designers coming out of, out of Copenhagen. Can you tell us who we're going to hear from next? Our Danish special episode was a real f- highlight for both of us, given how much we love going to Copenhagen. And for me in particular, speaking to Stine Goya, who when she came here, to open her her shop in London. She was here with us at Midori House. was uh, a real treat, I think, because she really personifies uh, Danish design, the, the timelessness of it, but also the joy and being a bit more daring and playing with colour and channeling optimism in general. So that was a great conversation. If I was to name one inspiration for me as a designer, as a driving power, it's colour. It's where I start from. Every time I build a collection, it's it's playful. And then I would say artistic because we do everything in-house, like all prints and all fabrics are all um, made within the house of us. I think what is quite significant for us is that actually when I hear people wearing our clothes, they all say that they get a lot of comments when they wear us because they are standing out a bit in the streets because it is you you have to be quite sort of in a way brave to put it on. Also, they still do represent a lot of the Scandinavian ethos and the Danish ethos, right? How does living in Copenhagen and uh, the overall ethos of uh, of Denmark around design inform what you do, even if... Uh, the aesthetic is more of a standout aesthetic than what we might traditionally associate with uh, Scandinavia. So Copenhagen is quite, I would say, a smaller creative community. Many of us know each other and I like to collaborate within um, also other industries than fashion. So at the moment, we are working quite a lot with a, an architect um, company called Spacon and X with who is creating our identities for the shows and and the way that we work together across like both fashion and, and kind of spatial design is quite interesting. And I think we have a very um, beautiful way of like understanding each other and coming to a point where we actually create something completely new together. And I think this is a, a good leeway into your... Uh, exciting London store opening as well because I know that you have some interesting collaborators for for the interiors and the design of that store as well so let tell me a little bit about uh, how you created the concept of that store who your collaborators were we started creating a new visual identity for us um, about a year ago we're working with a creative studio from Sweden it's called Vang and Söderström they have created our like our retail designs 
uh, and the way that they work has been really interesting for us because we um, it was really important for us to to use um, materials that were um, the most sustainable versions that we could use and they managed to actually create and find things that are the best that we could manage to find in within um, our kind of levels of being the most responsible as possible mm. and it's also been a big dream for us for for many years to actually be able to to open a shop here i mean even when i was studying at central St. martins many years ago it was like a dream to be able to to open a shop one day you know and so it's quite a big thing for us to be here this this moment And now also the UK has become such an important market for you. There's a lot of demand for Sinegoya. What do you think is the appeal for um, for British customers, for the brand? It's certainly um, something that I'm asked constantly uh, about the brand, Copenhagen fashion in general. Uh, there is a real appetite, it seems, uh, from people here about your take on fashion, what do you think has been the reason for this and, and your success? People have their eyes on Copenhagen and I think there's also such a like a positivity, um, like the vibe about Copenhagen. There's, I don't know if we can even keep up this hype, but I think people look at us for a nice way of living a life and a, like a positive lifestyle. Our brand is, of course, it is very Copenhagen-driven, and um, I would say that this also is a factor that people like um, like us, that we have this this very colorful and positive approach to what we do. That was Stina Goya, and we'll be right back in just a moment. Portugal has plenty more to offer visitors than sun, sea and sand. With its vibrant cities, rolling vineyards, an incredible history of design and a resourcefulness that always amazes. It's a fun place to eat. I mean, like, you just don't stop. It's sunny and it's warm and everything's outside. Like, it's great. Portugal, the Monocle Handbook is the first in a brand new series revealing our favorite places to eat, stay and shop from Lisbon to the Azores. Should you wish to stay a little longer, it will also help you find a neighborhood that could become your new base and introduce you to the people who have already put down roots. Head to monocle.com to find out more and prepare to see this fascinating nation afresh. And now we're back and it's me asking the questions. Oh, this is fun. <laughs> I like this. So what was your pick looking back at all the different interviews you've done over the year? Yeah, well, look, Natalie, first, thank you for asking the question. Um, it's, it's, you know, my favourite thing is when you're in the studio and I get to talk. Uh, you I like get it when the you spotlight. throw it back at me. I yeah, know, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's how I work. I like to, you know, even though I'm, I'm hosting typically, I like it when I feel like I'm stealing somebody else's thunder. And, and with you hosting now, I feel like I'm, I'm doing that. So, firstly, thank you for and that. And I'm a, just a little bit more humble and I like asking the questions. So, I think it's a good dynamic. Yeah, and so I'm go a, for it. Just... I'm okay with that. Um, no, so <laughs> I've, I've chosen Tim Ross, uh, who is a radio and, and television host by trade um, and a comedian. Median, but he's also uh, an expert in mid-century architecture and design. And uh, we had a conversation 
off the back of Modernism Week in Palm Springs, uh, where he's performed, you know, numerous shows, uh, stand-up inspired architecture shows there. The reason I selected it as my favourite piece for, for 2022 is because it's kind of work that we're trying to do at Monocle, which is where we push the conversation just beyond the architects and just beyond the, the design specialist and, and bring in people, you know, more broadly affected by design because we're all we're all affected by architecture. We're all in buildings, you know, every day. We're all moving along streets that have been thoughtfully designed. But so often I think the conversation stays between architects and, and stays between designers and I think what's really important is is trying to reach out to people that, you know, maybe have an interest in design but don't feel like it's accessible. And I think somebody like Tim Ross, who goes out and, and, and does stand-up comedy shows about design, is doing really, really important work just in, in terms of broadening that conversation and maybe making it feel a little bit less exclusive. That's why I've picked this one. That's so interesting. And it's such a good point because whether it's fashion, design, all the things we talk about here, it is part of everyday life in a way, so it, they should be more accessible. So let's hear from Tim Ross. A common thread through people who come and see me speak or watch my TV shows or come to my live shows is that when I talk about there being a house or a building that I saw when I was a kid that fascinated me, those ones always tended to be modernist houses or modernist buildings. A lot of people can relate to that. And I suppose that's because of the romance of modernism or the futurism of modernism. So you'd be looking at a I could be a kid in the late 1970s, uh, a little kid, and looking at a building from the 1950s and thinking that's the most modern thing I've ever seen in my life. There's a pull that architecture can have on you. So I think that's always been with me. And then people respond to that because it's a, it's a universal feeling. And you've turned that universal feeling into a career in a way, I guess, connecting with other people who also share that feeling too. Can you tell us more about that? I, I suppose it became an obsession that got out of control and turned into a career. So I had a pretty mainstream career in television, breakfast radio and stand-up comedy, but I just felt the pull of wanting to, to roll around in my passion. And, you know, Palm Springs is pretty intrinsic to that. The first series I did for the ABC, I was over there for Modernism Week and we filmed there and I was performing there. And so that became part of the narrative of in the post-war period you know there was places where there was pretty exciting architecture that was going on and obviously for lots of different reasons in palm springs it was a it was a mecca but you know part of the thesis of the the show that i was doing was that there were places within australia that you know rival it in some ways it's not as glamorous it's obviously not as many hollywood stars hanging out there and having martinis but the intent is still the same you know you have architecture enthusiasts and designers from all over the world descending on palm springs for modernism week what do you think that they can learn uh, you know especially architects today from from the ethos of, of modernism i think what's most important from it in terms of the ethos is to take the best of what's going on at this moment in time and let that propel us forward. Nothing wrong with looking to the past, but it's hard to say, well, people are recreating the past, you know, Georgian style architecture and you go mm, tut, tut, tut. But if you're building a buildings that look like they're from the 1930s, just because, you know, the style might, you might like them or building a pastiche Palm Springs house in places that aren't in the desert in this day and age can be peculiar. But uh, I suppose what they do give you is a sense of light. Targeting in on Palm Springs again is that there's this, that there seems to be this beauty of the connection of the desert. And the desert, because it is so vast and it sort of allows the architecture to pop, you know, you take a whole bunch of those different houses and then you put them in a very suburban context. They get overshadowed. Like whenever we look at those 
great houses. If they've got room to breathe, they're extraordinary. But you put the Farnsworth house next to two shitty houses in the suburbs, it's a good house, but it's not as incredible. So the relationship between wherever it is, relationship between nature and architecture is, I suppose, the most important part of this sort of livability how do you explain what it's like to live in a modernist house? It's just pleasant because you do connect with the seasons. You connect with leaves falling or not falling. You connect with sunrise and sunsets. There's a magic to it. There's a beauty to that. I guess just finally, how do we build houses and, 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 and structures that pay tribute to that magic and beauty today without you know, being pastiche, as you say? You can do that without you know, putting pink flamingos out the front of your house and putting a sturdy beaker out the front and making your home look like it's a 1950s diner, which is, it's quite fine for some people, but I don't think that's what really, that's not a lesson. It's not a lesson from the time, far from it, because to use a music analogy is that, you know, you've got all these bands, you want to sound like the Beatles, you know, and they sort of go, oh, I'm going to go all analog. And I'm an analog sort of guy and I understand that. But, you know, if anyone had watched Get Back, you know, the, the recent Beatles documentary, if the Beatles had more than 16 channels or eight channels or 14 channels to record on, they'd use every piece of technology they could possibly find. They would be far from being an analog band. So the great architects will always be looking forward, not backwards and be excited about their next project. And so I suppose you see that sometimes with some of the great modernists who um, their later work can disappoint when they rolled into the 1980s and um, things got a little bit funky for the purists, but time will show those buildings to be as beautiful, if not more beautiful in some ways as well, because they were evolving with the times. The comedian and architecture enthusiast, Tim Ross there. Nat, did you want to do that part, Natalie, or is it okay if I step back in and, and do the back announce? Well, I am going to say that just when the we stopped recording, you very <laughs> you took the reins and then... I can't help I think to... I was pretending that I like to steal other people's thunder, but I also like being the thunder, and I think that's, exactly. what, that's what we're going for. So right I will give you the lead. Go for well, it. No, no, I'm going to give you the lead. Why don't you throw <laughs> it to May Lee, our, our producer, and ha- ask her the question of, of her favourite... Uh, piece for 2022. May Lee, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's, it's very great s- to hear your voice and not just look at you behind the glass. Uh, yeah, it's, it's quite unusual for me to be part yeah. of this discussion, but... No, hey. but you're such a big part of everything and the, the boss of the show, so you should tell us what was your highlight of, of the year. I've picked um, a story that I went out and reported on been trying to get out and about of the studio a little bit more it's nice to have practitioners visit Missouri House but it's even more important I think to get to where those designers are stationed kind of get a glimpse of their worlds and how they create a space a sort of home for for their design so I visited the house of Too Good over in East London um, and for me felt like a really beautiful um, and interesting environment that really encapsulates what the brand is doing and hopefully in this next package you'll hear some of that magic In here, this is the main space downstairs. This is the space that we just play around with the most. So sometimes it'll be complete chaos in here and we're painting garments, making hand-painted coats or we're creating a collage or we're, you know, making a final artwork or a model of a chair out of clay or something. You know, it's definitely the room for play. Lots of people ask me about the process of working in the studio and how it works with all the people involved in the studio. And, you know, I think when I set it up, 
I was interested in finding other people that didn't want to be pigeonholed or, you know, that may have trained as an architect but was interested in fashion or someone that trained in fashion design but actually, you know, was really interested in industrial design. It's that cross-disciplining that's always been interesting to me. A project will come in and we'll all get round the table and we'll workshop it together. You know, we will find a way of, of making it work and we will question it and we'll look at it from all angles. And for me, it makes the design process potentially more rigorous. It makes it more fun. It just means that none of us really get bored because we're always working on something completely different. The kitchen is, we put together just really simply when we moved in, it's just a a little um, sink made of some stone and marble that I found in a junk shop. And it's just provided the perfect centrepiece for our kitchen. Up on the walls, again, we have a really long shelf filled with sculptures and maquettes, um, things over the years that have been made. Some of them have been transformed into pieces of furniture or artwork, and others have never made it into fruition. For me, it's really nice to keep these things. Sculpture has always been at the essence of who I am you know it's when I studied fine art I was working in more in sculpture in 3d than in 2d and it's something that I return to constantly it's sort of the way I know how to communicate and it's the way that I know how to create something that feels uniquely too good or unique to the studio form shape geometry sculpture these are all words that mean exactly the same thing and I have quite literally tried to create my own a to Z of form and shape. I had twins five years ago and after that I just locked myself away in the studio with some of the guys here and we created endless and I mean hundreds of sculptures that are now all archived in boxes and those sculptures are coming out now to be made in stone or in wood or recreated in bronze or they've sort of provided a, a new geometry for me. Whether it's the button on a coat that's made of something, you know, made of ceramic, or whether it's in a huge sculpture for a, a museum, it's that play with shape, and it's, I guess, it's the questioning why, why does that shape have to be that way? You know, why does a chair have to be shaped in a certain way? We have endless coats and we have endless chairs. We don't need anything new in the world particularly, but if I'm going to try and contribute to it, it needs to have its own shape and its own being, its own sculpture. So it's, it's so important and fundamental to what I do. One of the hazards of the house is that we have two sets of staircases. They're very narrow and it's, you know, it's a little old London house and somehow it's really higgledy-piggledy and it's quite dangerous coming up and down these steps, but so far we haven't lost anybody. Up on the first floor is where furniture and design happens. Um, it's also where my very important materials library is. And this is, for me, you know, the starting point of any collection and any piece, anything that we're working on starts with this wall and it's... Um, a series of shelves filled with materials and, and on that shelf you'll find anything from a pressed glass gun to a perfect tube of brass to a sculpture made of masking tape, a huge dollop of resin that looks like a massive fish eye, experimentations with bits of clay and trying to make the ultimate mud chair. We had to make a series of different um, experiments. So there's a you know a wide variety of materials and, and that Again, whether it's a coat or chair, that's where we start. 
for me, materials are really at the essence of everything that we do. They tend to be, you know, the, the starting point for a project. It's very difficult to say which materials are quintessentially too good. If you had to reduce my palette and you had to take away all those materials and only leave me with a few, it would always be canvas, clay, wire, paper and cardboard. You know, they're kind of, although they're the most simple and ubiquitous materials they're kind of really essential to too good and you know when we started our fashion collection we used only artist prime canvas it was all we could get hold of it was all we could afford we couldn't afford meters of cashmere if you can make something look really great out of cardboard and basic canvas then you know when you translate it into bronze or cashmere of course it's going to work it's a bit more of a challenge to me to make something really beautiful and valuable I don't mean that in terms of you know fiscally valuable but it you know just in terms of valuable to somebody relevant to somebody if you can make those out of the most simple materials I think somehow it connects to people more you know there's something more honest about it but there is a magpie within me so you will always find some gold <laughs> there's always a bit of glinty gold going on for me you know and sometimes that literally is tin foil, gold, bronze, and other times it's a recycled plastic. But it's just this, it's the combination and tension between those materials that I'm interested in. On the board at the moment, we've got various projects. You know, some of these may happen this year, some might happen in five years, you never really know. Making objects and making furniture can sometimes take a huge amount of time. And actually at the moment on the, the board is one of my favourite collections, which is a series of ceramics based around natural shapes. So there's seed pods, leaves and pumpkins and gourds. And these are starting to help me form a collection of shapes for ceramics, which we're hoping to happen next year. We work not only for ourselves, but also for other brands where we, we create collaborations. And so... I think it's important that, you know, we always have that bank of drawings of things that we, we're working on. It's so interesting, that idea of process and what comes first. Is it the model making? Is it the drawing? Where does drawing fit into this? I have to say, when I started it, I immediately went to drawing. It was the only way that I knew how to communicate to a maker or a manufacturer or an artisan what I wanted to create. But in the last three or four years, I've almost put drawing to one side as part of my process. And now I tend to go straight into 3D. So it's a play of model making and maquette making that is actually informing the shapes and the vocabulary that I'm using now rather than drawing. So right at the top of the house, this is the... The fashion room. This is the room where my sister is based and um, this is where all the pattern cutting happens and it's where the start of the fashion collections, you know, form their life up here. And so it's always a mess. <laughs> it's the messiest studio, but I love it for that. Um, there's always bits of fabric on the floor and bins full of extra fabric that we're working on, experimentation of painting onto fabric, patterns everywhere. It's definitely the kind of the room where it's most active and lively, I think. I avoid a label, I avoid being pigeonholed, so, you know, whether I'm called an artist or a designer, fashion designer, you know, these are just, for me, they're just slightly unwanted badges, but um, at the same time, 
I really recognise and embrace trade and craftsmanship. When I started the fashion collection, so we have the photographer jacket or the doorman acrobat trousers or um, the baker's trousers, you know, the draftsman shirt. They all have their own trade names and they all have a passport inside listing that trade, but also all the initials of the people involved in making it. Although I can't bear labels, I kind of also acknowledge them and embrace trade, artisan, manufacturing. By doing that for the clothing, it sort of made me have a reason to make a garment. You know, okay, if we're going to make a jacket, well, what, why? Who needs this jacket and what do they need it for? Well, a photographer needs giant pockets, so let's give them giant pockets and they need to be able to move around a lot. So the back has to be really, really square and not all tailored in like a normal tailored jacket. So those sorts of things have given us a reason for making that garment and you know we have these trades and we need to look after them. We have things here up in the studio that are not just fashion based and I think that's one of the things that I'm excited about this studio is that there's a great cross-discipline going on between the floors so whether you trained in fashion or whether you trained in furniture design the idea is that in this studio that you can you can work in both rooms and that actually it's as valid to, to have a furniture designer working on something for fashion, etc. So yeah, you will always find um, bits of other materials that may look like they belong to furniture, but actually they are coming into the fashion room because we will be inspired by the gloss on them or the raw edge or something about a particular material that we can then try and translate into a fashion garment. Tinker is the way that I used to describe myself. It's one that I feel comfortable with because a tinker essentially is a master of nothing but likes tinkering with everything and that probably is the best word I can use to describe what I do. You know, I don't claim to be the ultimate fashion designer or, you know, the superb craftsman or, you know, it's not really about that. I have found the equivalent of my shed and this is the Red Church Street and I like tinkering in it and if people are interested and find it relevant and want to buy it or connect with it in some way, that's great for me. Faye Too Good there, and that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. Today's episode of Monocle on Design was produced and edited by Maylie Evans, Thanks again, Natalie, for, for joining me. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening, and Merry Christmas. 